Good evening, uh, everybody. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulullah. It's really wonderful uh, to have so many people join us this evening. My name is uh, Asim Qureshi. I am the research director at the advocacy organization CAGE. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with CAGE and maybe are hearing about this event for the first time, CAGE is an organization that was set up in October 2003 and largely in response to what we saw as uh, breaches of the rule of law in relation to specifically Guantanamo Bay, that this prison was set up and it was established um, in order to house 100% Muslim detainees. I mean, that's we have to be very clear about what was going on there outside of the rule of law, outside of um, any recognized system of law. And that moment really led the organization to think about the war on terror and the way that it was being prosecuted, not just in the United States, but across the world. We saw tens of thousands of detainees being held in Afghanistan, in Iraq, after the Iraq war. And of course, hundreds, if not thousands of prisoners being transported in a secret network of prisons that were being used by the CIA and other American agencies in order to uh, torture and detain individuals outside of the rule of law. So when we think about and the global war on terror, we think about a, a global backsliding in international human rights standards. We see a concerted effort to try and move outside of, of the rule of law in whatever way is possible. Now, this is nothing new. We have seen this in many circumstances, in many places at many times, uh, from the black civil rights movement through apartheid, through the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and really what we have to recognize at the same time that more often than not, those who have been at the forefront of ensuring that people have rights are lawyers, are people who have an understanding of the way that the law works, but not only the law itself, the ethics of the law, the morality of law, and have really stepped outside of um, a liberal discourse on just obeying the law and saying to themselves that actually what we need to look at is the spirit of the law too. That something may be legal and yet may be unconscionable at the same time. And what happens often in these circumstances where you have brave and courageous lawyers who step outside of the bounds of what larger society has accepted is that those lawyers then get targeted. They get called names like radical lawyers or extreme lawyers and, you know, are vilified in, in various ways. And ultimately, that can have disastrous consequences. And we've seen that. We remember the names of Pat Finnegan and Rosemary Nelson, you know, people who were assassinated for, you know, for really trying to uphold the rule of law. We, I personally have worked with, with many of the people on this call today uh, over the last 20 years, I've worked with lawyers who have been very, very courageous. I've seen uh, friends and colleagues who, are, who represent people in Guantanamo being called traitors to their countries on national television, on mainstream television, um, and being vilified for simply trying to ensure that the rule of law is uh, respected. And CAGE, as part of our central mandate, you know, we, we insist on the idea that the rule of law exists beyond simply what laws 
currently are legislated, but rather we want to see a return to laws that are moral and ethical too. And so this was just uh, a short introduction uh, from me um, and of CAGE and of the event itself. It's my pleasure to introduce um, the chair for this evening. So I'll be leaving you now, but um, I will be definitely handing over to my, my good friend and colleague, Fahad Ansari, who is a human rights lawyer with uh, an extensively uh, brilliant uh, background in advocating on the rights of those who have had their rights taken away. He's done a number of national security cases. Um, he's really always gone beyond what is required of, of any lawyer to do. And he is, of course, um, in the process at times been vilified for it. But he is a great example of the kind of lawyer that we hope will continue to fight for the rights of us all. Uh, so Fahad, I'd like to hand it over to you. Thank you very much. Bismillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good evening to friends, colleagues. Um, big thank you to Asim and to Cage for one, organizing this incredibly important event. And for secondly, for inviting me to chair this. It's truly an honor to share this platform with some real uh, modern day superheroes, as far as I'm concerned. Um, Asim's given a real good introduction to where we stand in terms of the rule of law and why lawyers are so necessary. And particularly in the UK at the moment, because we all remember last year, the Home Secretary, Priti Patel's comments, where she repeatedly castigated human rights lawyers who are challenging the government's decision to remove asylum seekers, um, referring to them as activist lawyers, as lefty lawyers, she even equated them with human traffickers. And in the wake of uh, her comments, um, although not necessarily caused by her comments, there was an attack carried out on a very well-renowned well human rights firm in the country. And rather than apologize or tone down the rhetoric, she and the government upped the ante. Now, many of the panelists here will know the severe and great consequences of rhetoric like that. And we hope to explore those stories and what we can do to try to hold the government to account when they resort to such insightful rhetoric. Um, today is the 24th of January, which is globally uh, commemorated as the day of the endangered lawyer. And while routinely uh, this campaign has focused on uh, autocratic regimes across the world, and rightly so, uh, in terms of how they persecute legal representatives. Um, there has been very little attention paid to the countries in the developed world and how they deal with their own legal representatives who try to hold the governments to account. So what we wanted to do today is to look at the situation of lawyers in uh, more of the democratized developed world, such as in the US, the UK, India, South Africa, and see what has been happening and how these governments are holding up when they're held to account. And to kick things off, I'd like to invite our first panelist, who is one of uh, Britain's most esteemed uh, civil liberty lawyers. She has over four decades of rep experience representing those from marginalized communities. She's not someone who has met her name on the back of uh, the war on terror with the Muslim community, but has decades of experience prior to that with the black community, with the Irish communities, 
Her clients have included uh, celebrated cases like Guildford Ford, the Birmingham Six, um, uh, Frank Critchlow, the Mangrove Nine, Abu Qatada, Aron Wazenbeg from Cage, and uh, most recently, Julian Assange. So she's a personal hero to many people um, in this room today. And I'd like to hand over to Gareth Pierce, the senior partner at Bernberg Pierce, to share her experiences about representing the unrepresentable and how that's impacted her and uh, other lawyers like her. Thank you, Fahad. Um, Good evening. Um, I appreciate this seminar is trying to marry up the, the concept of endangered law with um, the endangerment of lawyers. And it's difficult in a way um, from London in relative safety to equate exactly that concept when many lawyers worldwide are in prison side by side with those they defend. But in part, this seminar is triggered, I believe, um, by the remarks last year, the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister, um, which woke us up to the fact that it is not enough just to be tolerant of um, extreme remarks, to think this is what they say, um, this is what they always say, um, but deserving of reaction and to revisit um, our own history. It's not enough to just barricade our offices or our homes um, and think this will be a passing phase where there may be some energized to do something in reaction, but to remember it was the remarks of ministers, the reckless, deliberate, dangerous, fatal remarks of ministers years ago directly emboldened others to assassinate our respected and loved colleagues, Pat Finucane and Rosemary Nelson. And perhaps if there had been adequate response, instead of accepting that the state was not going to do anything, was not going if, even to provide an inquiry or an understanding of the course of events that took place in the north of Ireland. But if there had ever been a proper day of reckoning for ministerial comments, not a lot different from the dog whistle rhetoric of the former president of the United States, incitement, encouragement, soliciting, directly or indirectly. If there had been a day of reckoning, then do we really think that the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary last year would have sung the same sort of tune? Considering, therefore, in, in this country, how we, how we address concepts. Just for myself, I can see that for too long um, there's been acceptance and tolerance and um, shrugging off 
the consequences, in part because what happens in England um, is a less extreme form. So having observed in the United States during the civil rights movements, how lawyers involved in the voter registration movement in the South would expect as they traveled from small town to small town to be arrested, detained too, or the lawyers in the Chicago 7 conspiracy trial imprisoned throughout the trial regularly for contempt of court. So coming to practice law in this country in the 1970s, in the late 1970s, lawyer for what was considered to be um, a suitable target, Black Power Movement, learning that the mangrove telephone lines were down, was perhaps too easily amused at two men coming very soon after to her door saying that her telephone was reported out of order and they had to come in to fix it. Clumsy in those days, clumsy and too easy to think this is what they do, this is what they say about us, this is normal. And so as, as this country has moved along, moved forwards or moved backwards, um, it's trying to think back to what it is that's being intruded upon, even by such a, a clumsy visitation. The underlying principle is that those who need to be defended don't just need but have the right to a safe and confidential relationship with the person who may be able to provide a defence. It's fundamental concept of confidentiality and safety. And in recent years, the public inquiry that is now looking into the role of undercover police um, is to find that for decades they infiltrated um, defence groups, protest groups. They became defendants. They were present at defence meetings. They interacted with defence lawyers as spies. And whatever barricades we put up around our premises when we think they are needed, there's no barricade possible um, for such intrusion. And so knowledge, such as it is and belatedly, um, should arm us to fight against perhaps too much tolerance and complacency. In the years that have then followed, not just years and years for Irish suspects and defendants, but in the grim post 9-11 years when rendition and torture um, came to be concepts that we understood were being actively acted out um, across the world began to change too um, 
as the law was manipulated, so too were the ways in which a lawyer could work were being subverted and undercut in a thousand and one ways. The introduction of secret courts, of secret evidence, defense lawyers not trusted to know, especially cleared lawyers who would have no, no, no contact with people they were deemed to be representing in secret hearings. The same ministerial attacks, the same terrifying threats on lawyers and the work, and perhaps more terrifying on the ability to work, subverted but not observed by the wider world. So we applaud the reaction of lawyers recently after the ministerial statements, who bravely said that their office was entered into. They've made public what lawyers will often think better not to say has been a threat, better not to say something has happened, lest it encourage more of the same. It's a good thing to be having this discussion. It's a right thing to be having this discussion. I would just briefly mention in, in the time that is given to me. Um, two, two steps, recent steps, um, which have come to light or been broadly, broadly stated, emanating from the US. Um, the first is in the case of um, extradition case of Julian Assange in which um, there have been, there's been the clearest evidence um, as a result of whistleblowing Spanish um, surveillance staff in the Ecuadorian embassy that on behalf of US intelligence agencies, they were asked and the data is there, specifically requests in writing to target the lawyers incoming to give legal advice but not just targeting the lawyers and finding out everything that could be found about them, but when they have to leave their phones and their electronic devices at the reception, to capture them, to extract the contents and provide them back to the USA. Not a great deal, not a great deal of observation as to how this breached the most fundamental protections. But what was he, what is he um, being extradited for? Um, specifically for publishing um, the data about Guantanamo, about rendition, about torture, the cables, diplomatic cables that talk about how to pressure European states um, not to prosecute those operatives who were involved. That brings to the last and perhaps the most extreme universally able to be seen example and which deserves our attention and that is in conjunction or in parallel or in contrast um, the last years of the Trump regime, Trump administration, the Secretary of State Pompeo is not just attacked in the most ugly, explicit way 
the International Criminal Court, the court of last resort when countries will not prosecute the most serious of offences, the gravest of crimes, crimes against humanity, torture and rendition, but announced executive orders um, against the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. She and her staff would not get visas to come to the US, but would have the assets frozen, the personal assets, and standing side by side the Secretary of State, the Attorney General of Barr, to say criminal actions will be considered too. This explicit attack on the court of last resort is a matter for the world to react to. It's the ult ultimate, overt, all-powerful expression of the endangerment of law the endangerment of what the world came to recognise was essential when all else would fail. Um, with that, I just ask, um, what will our country do? What will the US do? What will other nations do? Um, I thank Cage um, for making us think about these issues. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Gareth, for that uh, very deep uh, reflection on the state of, of uh, lawyers today and what's happening uh, in this country and across the pond as a representative of the threat that we all face. Um, we mentioned, uh, Gareth mentioned, and I mentioned as well earlier, about Pretty Patel's comments last year. And it's very easy to look upon those comments as an aberration from the norm as something that is just happening today and it's, it hasn't happened before. But that would be to betray the reality that this type of rhetoric, this type of attacks on human rights lawyers and civil liberty lawyers has been the language of successive governments, uh, both from the Conservative and Labour parties, unfortunately. Um, we need to look at the comments by David Cameron, by Theresa May, um, and even going back to Jack Straw's own comments um, when he was looking to introduce legislation that he felt would be challenged by lawyers at the time. And we all know how this can pan out in the most tragic circumstances. And it's not so long ago, just over 30 years, when a Home Office Minister, Douglas Hogg, commented in Parliament, um, speaking about lawyers in Northern Ireland during the Troubles at the time, that I have to state as a fact, but with great regret that there are in Northern Ireland a number of solicitors who are unduly sympathetic to the cause of the IRA. Just three weeks after those notorious comments, a prominent criminal defence solicitor, Patrick Finucane, who was known for representing Republican um, suspects, he was shot dead while having Sunday lunch with his family. Now, it seemed that Hogg's regrettable fact, which was repeated on numerous occasions by him and by others, was seized on to justify uh, Pat Finucane's assassination. And while the men who pulled the triggers may have belonged to a loyalist paramilitary outfit, the target was chosen by agents of the British state in an act of collusion that David Cameron himself would be forced to apologize for over two decades later. Now, just a couple of years ago, under the 30-year rule, 
Irish state papers were uh, disclosed that confirmed that Hogg's comments were reflected, and I quote, a precise official briefing and did not constitute a spontaneous outburst on his part. And it's worth repeating that it reflected a precise official briefing. Yet despite two inquiries which have concluded that Hogg had been compromised and had increased the vulnerability of prominent lawyers in Northern Ireland, Hogg himself was awarded a life peerage just five years ago. And now we are really honoured with us to have with us this evening uh, one of Patrick Finucane's children, Michael Finucane, who is himself a solicitor in Dublin, an activist and a commissioner with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Michael and his family have been campaigning for justice and for a uh, public inquiry into their father's killing for over three decades now, something which successive governments have refused to do. So I'd like Michael to share some of his own experiences with us at this point. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the invitation to, to speak with you all this evening. Um, I think it's a very timely event. Uh, it's perhaps regrettable that it should be timely, uh, but I think what we're doing is very important because it, it is precisely at times like these that I think lawyers uh, and people who are concerned about the rule of law generally uh, must speak up uh, and speak out uh, about what governments are doing, not only in their own countries, uh, but uh, across the world uh, for others uh, who may be in a much more difficult position uh, and not able to speak out and criticize uh, so readily without fear of reprisal against themselves and, and their families and friends. Um, as Fahad said in his introduction, my family has been involved in a 30-year campaign for a full public inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the murder of my father, Pat Finucan, uh, who was killed in Belfast on February 12, 1989. Uh, that campaign uh, perhaps culminated in uh, at least in British legal terms, uh, with the ultimate expression of condemnation and criticism of the British government's response because the UK Supreme Court uh, ruled in February 2019 that the investigations into the murder uh, have been inadequate uh, according to the required legal standard. That standard, of course, is set down in Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And the court very carefully analyzed and dissected the investigations that had taken place over the preceding three decades and concluded that they had not met the standards of promptness or public scrutiny, effectiveness, independence, nor had they involved my family uh, to the maximum extent required. You'll have to forgive me looking down to my left because I've got a page of notes here and it's it, it's, it's, in, it's interesting when you start to condense three decades of your life into one page so that you're not droning on for ages and ages, uh, as patient as one's audience might be. But there are so many landmarks along the way uh, that stick out in my memory. Um, one that I had not thought about for quite some time, but I recalled uh, just today when I was thinking about what I was going to say this evening was the letter that we received from Tony Blair, that great humanitarian and shining beacon of human rights across the world, or so he would like to think. 
because we met, first met with Tony Blair in 2000 in Downing Street and explains 11 years on why uh, a public inquiry was necessary and why the case of Pat Finucane was not only important to us, but important to so many people across Northern Ireland, the, the entire island of Ireland, Britain, it has to be said, because many people were very concerned about it, and further afield into the United States. After a long meeting where we explained to him uh, why this was a significant and important case that deserved public scrutiny, uh, we received a letter about four or five weeks later. I can't remember all of the text, but I think the really salient point was Mr. Blair's rejection of our call for an inquiry because he really wasn't convinced that a public inquiry would reveal anything new. Several years later, about 14 years later, in fact, his successor, David Cameron, would stand up in the British House of Commons and apologize for the shocking levels of collusion, which the government was by then forced to acknowledge. I don't know what Tony Blair's definition of new was in 2000, but really only two conclusions come out from what he wrote to us. Either he was completely unaware because people were keeping things from him of the real circumstances behind the murder of Pat Finucane, or he knew about it and he just didn't want to reveal it. It's difficult to get away from the latter conclusion over many subsequent years because as the evidence has been presented and as the evidence is mounted up over the years, the governments has, have seemed to have just gone to greater and more inventive lengths uh, to prevent the truth from coming out. But nevertheless, uh, the persistence of my family uh, with the help of many, many other people has resulted in revelations as to what was really going on during the conflict period in Northern Ireland. And I suppose that's one success that we have had uh, over all of this time, because although we may not have achieved the public inquiry as yet, what we have achieved is the, re the revelation and uncovering of the system of law or lack of the rule of law in Northern Ireland over so many years. And what we have been able to do uh, with the help of a great many other people is to demonstrate just how much the state was involved in working with and colluding with uh, paramilitaries uh, to further the aims of government in circumstances where it could not be admitted publicly. And one of those methodologies was the serial intimidation of lawyers working in the field of criminal defense and human rights. Um, my father was one such solicitor, but many people uh, endured this sort of harassment and intimidation over the years. Now, it has to be acknowledged that many lawyers in the north of Ireland were targets. They were targets of paramilitary organizations because of the very tense and hostile political situation that existed at that time. Uh, judges were killed, prosecution lawyers were killed. The situation was one where the rule of law always seemed to balance on a knife edge. But the difference for defense lawyers was that their precarious position, we now know beyond any doubt, was being fostered and encouraged and in many cases facilitated by state action and the actions of law enforcement agencies. The police service, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the British Army, the security services, military intelligence, all played a role in not only 
creating and developing a hostile environment for lawyers, for defense lawyers, but also in some cases, making sure they were targeted for assassination. In the case of my father, a successful assassination, but other people face those sorts of threats too on a daily basis. And it's easy to see how such a difficult situation as that could develop uh, in a conflict environment, uh, such as the one that existed in Belfast and across Northern Ireland in 1989. But uh, as Fahad mentioned earlier, 10 years later, almost to the day, another defence lawyer would be murdered in Northern Ireland in hauntingly similar circumstances to Pat Finucane. And that, of course, was Rosemary Nelson. Now, Rosemary was blown up in her car in March 1999. She left behind a husband and a young family. For several years before she died, threats, intimidation, harassment had all been reported from the RUC against Rosemary because of the work that she was doing and because of this hugely distorted and uh, hideous uh, uh, confusion of her with the causes of her clients or the believed or perceived causes of her clients. And this was something that was facilitated and motivated and uh, pushed by state agencies, in the, in, mostly in the, in the shape of the police and, uh, and the government. And when she complained, and when she brought these things to the attention of not only uh, local authorities, but also international authorities, such as the UN Rapporteur on the Independence of Judges and Lawyers, and also the United States Congress, it seemed to serve only uh, to put her at greater risk. So 10 years on from the murder of Pat Finucane, a killing that she herself referenced in a speech to the US Congress, Rosemary was murdered also by loyalist paramilitaries. Now that was a year after the Belfast Agreement was signed uh, and subsequently ratified. So we should have been, one hoped we would have been in a period of calm or moving towards calm or moving towards uh, a relative peace, one underpinned by the rule of law, uh, underpinned by the sort of values that had been so strikingly absent for so many years before, and that perhaps we thought or hoped that we'd be moving beyond uh, and would never have to face again. And yet, tragically, we did. And it was entirely preventable. Rosemary could have been protected and should have been protected, uh, but she wasn't. And one can only have the great suspicion, if not come to the striking conclusion, that it was because of what she was doing that made it easier to facilitate and allow the assassination than it was to protect her. And this was only to further the state's own interests. Um, when these cases came for consideration uh, by uh, the British government in terms of whether there was going to be a public inquiry, uh, an initial investigation was carried out by a former uh, Canadian Supreme Court judge, uh, Peter Corey. Corey concluded in the case of Rosemary Nelson uh, that there was very little doubt that it was the work she was doing uh, that ultimately resulted in her murder and in her being targeted for, for murder by the loyalist paramilitaries responsible. Uh, if the state does not protect 
lawyers and does not protect human rights defenders, as Rosemary herself said, then there will be nobody left to protect human rights. And it seems that this is something that the current government uh, and several figures within it uh, have taken up as almost uh, a mantra. Uh, not that the rule of law will be protected, uh, but that the lawyers will be attacked instead. Uh, this is highly reminiscent of what happened in the case of my father, Pat Finucane, because only several weeks after he was murdered, uh, a Home Office Minister, Douglas Hogg, stated in Parliament under privilege uh, that there were in Northern Ireland a number of solicitors unduly sympathetic to the cause of the IRA. We now know from the information that has come out since then uh, that this was more or less taken as a green light by paramilitaries on the ground to go ahead with the target that had been pushed by the police and that was known about by the British Army for so many years, that target being Pat Finucane. What we didn't know, but now do know because we've seen the, the documents, is that Hogg's statement came about directly as a result of a briefing from senior members of the RUC, which included the then Chief Constable, uh, John Herman. Uh, he was told that lawyers were abusing their position. He was told that lawyers were ferrying information back and forward between uh, paramilitaries in prison and paramilitaries on the ground. He was told that confidential and privileged communications uh, were being abused in order to keep people uh, informed within uh, nationalist communities who were connected to the IRA so that they would know what was happening uh, with persons who'd been arrested or who'd been detained. Much of this was supposition. There was no real basis for it, but it was an easy way to slur the reputation of lawyers and again, to contribute to the hostile atmosphere. And it was extremely effective because once that atmosphere was created, then news media outlets at the time would be fed information that it was generally considered okay to broadcast and okay to publish. And this is in an era pre-internet, pre-email, pre-mobile phones. We just about had ATMs. But you could very easily create an atmosphere in which it was okay to murder a lawyer for doing their job. At the time of Pat Finucane's murder, there was very little official recognition, no attendance at the funeral, no condemnation from official sources uh, or official agencies of this murder, just a quiet acceptance or resignation or pursing of the lips that sort of suggested, well, if you're gonna do this job, if you're gonna play with fire, this is what happens. It's okay but it's not okay. It's never okay. And the people being attacked for doing the job and being harassed and intimidated are not the people responsible for it. It's the people doing the intimidating and the harassing who are responsible for it. And the responsibility of the authorities is to prevent the harassment and intimidation, not to be causing it, not to be motivating it or encouraging it or facilitating it, and certainly not to set up complicated systems of collusion that make it possible for people to do this and get away with it. To date, nobody has been convicted of the murder of Rosemary Nelson. To date, 
the only people who have been prosecuted for the murder of Pat Finucane are low-level, meaningless loyalists who, in one case, pleaded guilty, and in another case, beat the charges because so much time had gone past and when then was subsequently killed himself. The official response in terms of criminal prosecution has been highly, completely ineffective. So it's been left to my family and other people who have maintained an interest in the case over so many years to push, not for the prosecution of individuals, but for the exposure of the system behind it. And certainly I think that if we have managed to do any good in all of that time, uh, it is to expose one example of a system that may have started way back in a conflict period in Northern Ireland, but continued for many years afterwards and continues even to this day, albeit in a more up-to-date, technologically proficient guise. And hopefully in doing so, in doing that work, we can expose a case example that will help people who are currently facing that situation to understand, uh, to protect themselves, to resist what's going on, and hopefully to prevent anyone else from being killed just for doing their very, very important jobs. Um, I know that my family isn't going to stop until we succeed in getting a public inquiry. Um, the ruling of the UK Supreme Court, I think, is very significant for us because it sets a marker within British law from which we can draw an awful lot of strength and encouragement going forward because it is a, a landmark decision that the British government is required to respond to. Um, but to those people who are currently facing uh, what Pat Finucan faced back in the 1980s and what Rosemary Nelson faced in her life, uh, I would simply say that, you know, you're not alone. There are other people out there who at least understand and are trying to do what they can uh, to help you in what you're doing. Um, if I could offer a small crumb of encouragement, it is only the most effective lawyers who, are, who face this sort of harassment. So if you're facing it, well, then you must be very good at what you do. Um, it's not easy to continue, but please know that there are a lot of people out there in the world who are trying as best they can to have your back. Um, I look at the computer screen in front of me and I see some of those people, um, some of whom I've read about and admired for a great many years, um, and many more uh, whom I'm learning about on a, on a daily basis. Um, but it is incumbent on the rest of us, I think, to hold our governments to account to insist on proper human rights standards and to always, always demand that the rule of law is respected. Because if it is respected, then we at least have a benchmark from which everyone can emerge on a level playing field to be treated the same and be given exactly the same treatment. And equal treatment before the law is one of the fundamentals of humanity. And I think it should be given much more respect and much more prominence as we move forward and we should never, never, ever forget the price that some people have paid to guarantee it. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, for a very powerful um, account of your own personal experience and those of other lawyers in Northern Ireland. 
Um, for me personally, I mean, I've read a lot about uh, your father's case, but to hear it firsthand and to your personal reflections in this environment has been really, um, really, really deep. The issue about Irish uh, prisoners and the troubles, um, for many of the lawyers who represented them, they would have heard stories about torture and consisting of being hooded, being subjected to sleep deprivation, deprived of food and drink, and uh, tortured with the use of noise. Now, the hooded men of the 21st century um, were a different kettle of fish. They were the hundreds of Muslims who were rounded up, uh, kidnapped, and rendered to different countries before finding themselves in Guantanamo Bay uh, at the beginning of 2002. Now, just as it was deemed during the 70s to be morally reprehensible to defend suspected Republicans, uh, in the early 2000s to call for due process and the rule of law to be applied to the detainees at Guantanamo Bay was the easiest way of alienating yourself from your friends, your family, uh, your colleagues and general society. Um, at that time, remember these people were described as the worst of the worst and anyone who was campaigning for them in any way, let alone representing them, found themselves in a very lonely place. It was in that environment that CAGE, previously known as CAGE Prisoners, was, was established with the main focus being Guantanamo Bay. And a life was, was very lonely back then, as Asim will, sure to, will surely tell you. Now, one lawyer who was there from the very beginning and continues to fight for those detainees in Guantanamo Bay 19 years on, is our next speaker, Clive Stafford-Smith, uh, the founder and director of the legal charity Reprieve. Um, Clive's never been afraid to take on the might of the US military government. He's been campaigning for the closure of Guantanamo for almost two decades. And in that time, he's helped to secure the release of at least 60 detainees, including all of the British prisoners who were held there. Um, at one point, Clive was threatened with a six-month jail sentence after writing a letter to President Obama detailing his client's allegations of torture by US agents, which it was deemed to have breached the rules governing the conduct of Guantanamo representatives. So um, Clive is going to talk about his experiences and what really matters and who really is, should be the center of, uh, of this seminar. Over to you, Clive. Thank you very much. I've got to do my share. Oh, someone, the host has disabled my ability to share screen. Would the host please able it, enable it? because I want to show you PowerPoint, which sad to say has no pictures of my 12 year old in it today. Um, will someone give me a shout when I can do it? Oops. Anyway, we will get to that. Um, I, had, I, I want to correct you, it wasn't six months and I certainly wasn't um, guilty. Um, we were facing much longer and actually one time 40 years for the heinous offense of smuggling underarm underpants and speedo swimming trunks into um, into Guantanamo to give to Shakarama. Some of you may be familiar with him. And I, actually, I didn't do that one either. Uh, and with all of these things, I think it's really important to see. Oh, good. Here we go. Now, let me share screen and do the slideshow from the start. So look. Um, I really don't want to talk about lawyers. I, I am I, I'm phobic about lawyers. I am one, but I'm phobic about them. And I think we, we, we think we are much too important. Um, I would, if I was honest, um, I would set up an organization called opwm.org. Oops, come on. Oh, Gareth, you're, uh, you're, you're mute now. 
OPWM.org would stand for uh, Old Privileged White Men. And we are really not the ones who are in the line of fire. Yeah, I've been prosecuted a number of times, but we're not the ones who face danger. There are some lawyers here who genuinely do, and and it's very nice to have Habil here. And I hope we can work with people who are genuinely in in difficult positions. And indeed, uh, someone, Salman Khan from South Africa, was asking what we can do about um, about Kashmir. And Habil, I hope we can work together in the future. I'm, I'm just setting up a charity where we're going to come around and play cricket in places like Kashmir, because I think it's important for us old privileged white men to put ourselves on the firing line a little bit, because actually we're never really in danger. I'm much more in danger from um, from the drivers of America than I would be from the rather useless lawyers who keep trying to prosecute me. We lawyers are really not the most significant people at all, um, certainly in, in my sense. And I want to talk about the people who I think are the most important ones. I used to spend all of my life doing death penalty cases in the US. And I found it extraordinary that lawyers thought that we were the ones who should get uh, the sympathy and all the rest of it. It was absolute nonsense. It was our clients, the ones who were facing the death penalty were the people who really needed it. And, and I have to say, I didn't have much time for the lawyers who thought that it was all about them. But there are other people who are much more important too. And I always thought when I was being prosecuted, and it's happened five or six times, um, that bring it on. I mean, they always pick the stupidest things to prosecute you for. And as long as they were prosecuting me, they weren't prosecuting my clients. And I welcomed it because I think our task, task is what my mother used to say, which is it is our task of those of us who are intensely privileged to get between the people doing the hating and the people being hated. And if that involves being prosecuted, I don't care. I I should say, I take it very, very seriously. It's not something you should deal with lightly. I I take the rules incredibly seriously and I obey all of them, even the incredibly stupid ones because I want to carry on representing my client. But on the other hand, the thing that ruins life for all of us in the end is fear. And if we're afraid of the people going after us, then we're in the wrong business. But the most important people are not the lawyers. Uh, Just like um, when you're doing a trial, the most important thing is not the law. The most important things are the facts in any case, whether whether it be a case that involves a legal issue or not. The facts are vastly more important. And the first group of people I think we should recognize today uh, who help lawyers do their job and who are far more important than lawyers, frankly, are the whistleblowers. Obviously, this is Edward Snowden. Um, Gareth has mentioned Julian Assange. How many times have we been able to bring cases because these courageous people have stood up and whistleblown to criminal offences being committed by the government, normally by one of my governments. I'm half American, half British. Uh, It's always used to be the American half of me that had to apologize, but actually the British ones are trying to catch up right now. But 
I would like to recognize these folk. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of Gareth doing the tremendous work that she does for Julian. But let's face it, Julian's the one who's serving time in Belmarsh and who the government is trying to send to spend the rest of his life in some god-awful prison in America, are uh, simply for revealing evidence of criminal wrongdoing by certain powerful people. And I think that's incredibly important. The second aspect of this is investigators. I spent my entire time as a lawyer in Louisiana doing death penalty work trying to get them to focus on the importance of the investigator rather than the lawyer. Yeah, they didn't pay us very much. In fact, they used to pay us $1,000 for an entire death penalty case, which I would talk to my corporate lawyer friends who went, I was in law school, where they were being paid $1,000 an hour. Uh, and yeah, it wasn't very much. And we sued them under the federal minimum wage law at one point in one. But they never used to pay investigators anything. And the investigators are the ones who bring in the facts that make it possible for us to represent our clients. And here, you know, yeah, I get venomous stuff. I got called a traitor 13 times in a five-minute interview when I brought the first case on Guantanamo because I had the um, lack of wisdom to go on television uh, as I didn't realize quite what it was going to be like. Um, but honestly, what do I care, right? It's not me. I don't care if they call me a traitor. The investigators are the ones who really get it. Nowadays, I get all this stuff uh, coming on a program with Cage. Well, I'll come on any program with Cage because Cage does tremendous work in bringing facts to light that we need to bring any case or we need, more importantly, to, to get rid of, um, to get people out of these ghastly prisons. To illustrate the, the, the balance here, when I first brought with a couple of friends the, the case against Guantanamo, yeah, you know, we got this hate stuff and we finally got the right to get into Guantanamo and so on and so forth. But, you know, we've got 740 prisoners out of Guantanamo so far, and the court of law has ordered the release of zero, not a single one. Every single person has been released from Guantanamo Bay because of the court of public opinion, and that's because we've got the facts out and we've revealed the facts to people outside and embarrassed the United States uh, with the, the truth about what uh, the folk in Guantanamo, who they really were. So again, I think the investigators are vastly more important than us as lawyers. The third group of people are obviously the clients. And, you know, one of the things, I, I'm not actually with Reprieve anymore because I was founder for too long and it was time for them to get rid of me and send me off to do well, much of the same, really, but they should be allowed to stand on their own two feet. But whatever we did at Reprieve, and I think it's whatever anyone does who's effective, is dependent upon the clients, not upon us. So I'm going to recognize a few here. You'll recognize this chap. I hope he starts heckling. I hope he's, he's on this. Uh, Mosem was one of the first people I met in Guantanamo Bay, and I went in to see him in November 2004, he was the one who was suffering. It wasn't me. Um, he was particularly suffering because Gareth had given me an, a letter of introduction to Mosin, which said I was some sort of famous death penalty lawyer. And that just terrified poor Mosin. He thought he was going to be facing the death penalty and executed. Um, but I talked to Mosin that time and we're sitting there. And yeah, of course, they're listening to us. Of course, they're violating the attorney-client privilege. Of course they do. We should just assume that. And anyone who doesn't assume that um, really needs to get a life. 
But Mosin told me everything he had gone through, and he told me about a murder he had witnessed. Um, and back in the day, that everything that we talk to our clients about in Guantanamo is classified as secret. And we're not allowed to talk about it unless the censors let it out. And um, so I sent my notes to Washington, D.C., and then I typed them up when I got to Washington. And then I submitted them all for, for censorship. And they censored every page, 30 pages of it. And so I asked them why. And, uh, and they said it's because all the stuff you've written about this guy Beg being tortured and abused and so forth is methods and means of interrogation, and it's clearly classified. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, Mosin told me about a murder. Surely when we haven't come to the point where it's part of our interrogation method to murder people. And they said, oh, yes, it is. And so we had to get that stuff out. And the way we do it is obviously just to embarrass the government. And that was the first time that I took that. And I wrote a letter to President Bush and to Tony Blair saying, you know, dear Tony, um, you know, and then it said, in Ray, torture and abuse of my client, Mozambique. And they censored every word of my letter, except the first line about torture and the last line about how anything taken out of this letter shows the Americans don't want you to know what's happening to the poor chap. So we published that on the front page of the Times, and that embarrassed them so much more because you know left people to just imagine the things that were happening to poor Mosin. Mosin was the hero there it wasn't his damn lawyer it was Mosin Beg, and he's been a hero ever since a hero to me and to many other people here today for the way that he's dealt with his experience the second person Samuel Hajj oh Sammy he's the he is the godfather of my son and I am I think probably the godless father of one of his sons and um Sammy, as you all know, was an Al Jazeera journalist, and he was there in Guantanamo Bay. What a client to have. Sam, the only uh, organization with a journalist in there was Al Jazeera. And Sammy was such a fantastic guy. He got me more facts than anyone else. One more person I want to mention, because they're still there. This is Ahmed Rabani, who was a... a he's a taxi driver from Karachi who was sold to the Americans for a bounty because they said that he was a, an extremist called Hassan Gul. And he was tortured for 540 days in the dark prison. And he's still in Guantanamo Bay. And we learned that while he was in the dark prison, the Americans captured Hassan Gul. And they let him go, but they sent Ahmed Rabani to Guantanamo, for goodness sake, where he suffers to this day. Um, and he's a tremendous ally for those of us who are trying to get the rest of the prisoners out. Ahmed Rabani is another hero, much more than his lawyer. And the same is true of all of these guys' families. Uh, I'll never forget going to Yemen for the first time where people who had all their loved ones in Guantanamo were somehow meant to get them out. And how are they going to do that? I mean, it's extraordinary the suffering we inflicted on those people. So I'm sorry, there are some great lawyers here, and I respect that. But let's face it, I don't think the lawyers are the heroes here. I think it's the other people. So I want to work primarily with people who aren't lawyers, frankly. I'm happy to work with lawyers, but I'm much more interested in the investigators and the people who have the courage to give us the information and in the clients who are ultimately the heroes of all of this. That's enough for me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Clive. Um, 
always entertaining to hear Clive speak. Um, his his uh, point is very valid in that the real heroes, of course, are the clients in all of this. And the reality is, is that the only reason that the state or the public or the press harass and vilify or do worse to, to lawyers is not because they hate any one of us or anything we've done, but it's because of the hatred that, that they focus on our clients is extended to the lawyers simply because we are the last line of defense before um, against the excesses of the state. Um, now, Clive mentioned uh, Habil in India, who is going to be our next speaker. Um, India is a country which uh, likes to pride itself as being the largest democracy in the world. Um, that mask is well and truly off, as recent years have demonstrated under the premiership of Narendra Modi. And issues about lawyers have been not just happening under Modi, but happening for many years prior to that. And if it could be traced back to the Mumbai attacks in 2008, and how any lawyers who were representing um, Muslim terror suspects after that were vilified and harassed and demonized. But sometimes that type of uh, abuse and vilification, you almost come to expect it from the general public, from the government. But what happens when that pressure comes from within the legal profession, when your fellow colleagues start turning on you? And not just the, like might happen in this country, you get a, you know, a dirty look or you get some you know, office gossip against you, whatever the case may be. In, in Mumbai, for example, after the, the terrorist attacks in India, bar councils were passing resolutions that their members could not actually represent anyone accused of the Mumbai attacks. And those who defied it were abused, intimidated, and on certain occasions severely beaten by other barristers, by other lawyers who work together with them. So I'll give you just a couple of examples before I introduce Habil so you have an idea of what Habil puts himself in every single day he goes to work. Um, there's a gentleman named Mohammed Shoaib. He was beaten by his fellow lawyers at court, no less, for representing a man called Aftab Ansari who was accused in a 2007 uh, terrorism case. Now he was ultimately acquitted thanks to the work of his lawyer um, and he's living as a free man today, but had, had Shuaib not defied the resolution that he couldn't um, defend him, I'm sorry, he'd still be languishing in jail today. Um, and this has happened routinely. Another gentleman called Noor Muhammad was attacked for defying a bar association ban on defending terror suspects. And not only that, though, after he was beaten up, the police allegedly whisked him away in a van and refused to release him until he signed a statement that he wouldn't lodge any criminal complaint against the other lawyers who attacked him. And he promised that he wouldn't complain about his injuries and how he they were sustained at hospital. Um, a few years ago in 2013, there's a, a lawyer called Jamal Ahmed who was representing a terrorist suspect. His office was ransacked by several other lawyers um, within the district court premises. And then another lawyer was also attacked the same day and had to be admitted to hospital, again, attacked by fellow lawyers. Um, the most shocking case of um, targeting of lawyers in India is similar to what, we, what Michael spoke about in Ireland happened about 10 years ago when Shahid Azmi was gunned down in his home, um, again, by armed, unidentified gunmen. Um, Shahid was just 32 years old, but had become renowned for successfully representing those accused of terrorism. 
Um, in only seven years, he managed to secure 17 acquittals uh, in terrorism cases, following which he was assassinated. And again, over a decade after his killing, not a single person has been convicted of the murder. So this is the environment in which um, our next speaker is operating, um, probably worse because Habil Iqbal is a human rights lawyer and activist in the Indian administered Kashmir region, uh, one of the most heavily militarized zones in the entire world. And he has taken it upon himself to represent those who are arbitrarily detained uh, in Kashmir by the Indian government. Uh, the, the law there allows people to be detained for two years without charge. Habil also works for the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons, which works uh, to challenge enforced disappearances in Kashmir. Last year, Habil was summoned by the police after he criticized a court judgment, uh, which allowed the continued detention of the president of the Bar Association, um, which is a case in which the law society in this country has also intervened. So without further ado, I'd like Habil to, to share his uh, experiences of being a lawyer in India with us. Thank you, Cage, for organizing uh, this legal seminar on the 11th day of the endangered uh, lawyer. And uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, yes, as uh, Fahad said, I am from uh, Indian administered Kashmir. And as Fahad talked about, uh, so many, uh, so many persecutions and so many lawyers being harassed and silenced uh, in India. So uh, let me go back in uh, time. It goes back to the 1990s uh, for us who have been living in Kashmir. And the first time I heard about a lawyer being killed was I was in my uh, I was a teenager then. It was in 1996 when advocate uh, Jalil Andrabi, he was a famous human rights lawyer in Kashmir. He was uh, abducted by Indian uh, army. And then some days later, his dead body was found. And uh, the perpetrators were the Indian army personnel. And uh, the Indian and the court in Kashmir, uh, it... Uh, it held that Major Avtar Singh was guilty of that killing. But since it did not stop the Major from escaping from Kashmir, and then he went to Canada, and ultimately an uh, Interpol notice was issued, and then ultimately he was found in uh, US, but uh, he could not be brought to justice. Uh, some years back, uh, he killed his family in San Francisco. He killed himself and he killed his family also. So that was that was some years ago. And this gentleman was 36 years old lawyer who was killed. And since then, um, Habil, I think we've lost connection with Habil. Um, let's see if we can get him back on the line. Okay, well, um, we can bring Habil back in, um, but until he comes back on, I think we should just continue. Um, so Habil was talking about in India, if he does come back on, we try to bring him back in. But in the meantime, we can head back to the, to the US for our next speaker. Um, because in terms of we talked about, Clive talked about being prosecuted 
on several occasions unsuccessfully. Um, our next speaker is someone who they succeeded in, in, in prosecuting him um, and convicting him, albeit by way of a, a plea deal. Uh, but he's someone who has been on the front line of so-called radical lawyering for the past 30 years. Someone who was very close with the late civil liberties attorney, Lynn Stewart, who herself went to prison um, in trumped up political charges for her own work defending terror suspects. Um, Stanley Cohen um, is an activist who has been labelled a anti-Semite, has been labelled a, uh, a terrorist mouthpiece, um, and many other things in, in his career. His clients include leading Hamas leaders, uh, Musa Marzouk and Suleiman Abu Ghait. Um, and he's someone who can talk about his own experiences of state persecution because he has lived the experience for the past 30 years. Um, I've just noticed, Sunny, that Habil is back, so I'm going to go back to him. Um, if you can just wait after that introduction. Habil, can you hear uh, Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. So uh, I'm so sorry I lost the connection because... Yeah, let me let me tell you because uh, the internet speed here has been restricted to 2G. The state has restricted the internet speed to 2G here. That's why it becomes very difficult for us to communicate with the outside world. So I lost the connection. Okay, not to worry. I mean, if it cuts off again, we'll give you a few minutes for you to come back in. Okay. It's really good that you're back, Habil, because you just know that in this group, we're going to think the worst, despite trying to inspire everybody as much as we can. So it's good to see you back. Thank you. So uh, in fact, after August 5th, 2019, uh, Kashmir's limited autonomy was abrogated by India. And thereafter for seven consecutive months, we had no internet. Now after seven months, uh, 2G internet has been uh, restored here but we are still having uh, limited speeds and there was a com complete communication blockade after 5th August, 2019. So I'm so sorry, uh, we lost the connection here. Now, uh, yeah, so coming back to how laws uh, are used as an engine of oppression here. So uh, India has imposed laws like uh, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, Public Safety Act, Unlawful Activities uh, Prevention Act. These are some of the laws which have been uh, used over the years uh, by India. Uh, and Kashmir has been turned into a state of exception, a state where emergency laws have been imposed. And uh, this has been happening over the last three or four decades. Uh, we have seen how lawyers have been uh, booked under arrested uh, under these preventive detention laws. That's administrative. We are talking about administrative detention. Uh, after uh, the 2009, after 2019, 5th August, our bar president, Mr. Mia Abdul Qayyum, he was also uh, detained arbitrarily under Public Safety Act. Uh, it's an act which uh, under which you can be. Uh, you can be uh, detained for two years without a trial, without a charge. So uh, many lawyers were detained uh, under this act after uh, August 5th, 2019. And before also, before also, there have been many such instances where lawyers have been arrested, they have been detained and they have been uh, tortured. And uh, see, when we talk about these laws, these laws give absolute impunity uh, to the forces here. 
the impunity enjoyed by the forces is both uh, uh, de jure impunity as well as de facto impunity. And uh, when we see the oppression, the oppression carried by the forces here is systematic and it's uh, institutional also. The laws uh, are used by the perpetrators. It gives them a sense of it. It's, it acts like an anesthesia for the perpetrators that it, it sanitizes. It kind of gives them this false sense that they can hide behind the fig leaf of the law. So uh, we have seen how the courts have failed in uh, Kashmir to act as uh, as uh, as upholding the rule of law. Now, recently, we have also uh, cases in India wherein lawyers have been targeted. Uh, we have uh, a famous case is going on in India that's known as Bhima Koregaon case, in which many lawyers like Sudha Bardwaj, Surendra Gadling, Orun Farera, they have been arrested under a draconian law, Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, under which... Uh, the lawyers have been targeted and uh, actually they have been targeted for speaking against the government policies and uh, they have been targeting they have been targeted for speaking for the marginalized sections of the society and as fahad talked about uh, shahid azmi who was killed in 2010 back in 2010 he had uh, helped acquit some of the some of the accused who had been wrongly uh, convicted, who, ha who had been wrongly accused, sorry, not convicted, who had been wrongly accused of terrorism charges. So uh, when we uh, talk about the courts here, the courts have failed uh, to come uh, to the rescue of the ordinary people. And uh, by using these laws, like uh, which I mentioned, uh, Armed Forces Special Powers Act, Public Safety Act, and Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, anybody can be labeled as a terrorist here. In the name of uh, security of the state, in the name of public order, lawyers, activists, they have been booked and they have been prosecuted for uh, under these vague and overly broad charges under Public Safety Act or the UAPA, which is known as the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. So uh, uh, then we can also talk about the NIA, which is the counter, which is the premier investigating agency, or we can say uh, the agency which deals with the terrorism in India, that's the NIA, National Investigating Agency. So uh, last year, we also saw the NIA uh, raids on prominent human rights lawyer of Kashmir. Uh, he's a RAFTO uh, laureate, Mr. Parvez Imroz. Their office was raided. And these raids, uh, these raids actually have uh, created a sense of fear among the lawyers' fraternity. And uh, I have met many accused who say that uh, lawyers are refusing their briefs, fearing state reprisal, fearing state uh, persecution, fearing silenced by the state. And uh, so uh, thereafter, we can also <clears throat> we can also say that law pro, law acts as something which is central to the project of establishing and enacting and maintaining the state control in Kashmir. And 
as well as in other parts of the in other parts of uh, this world so what we see is that uh, these laws basically sanction human rights excesses we can say we have uh, legislated excesses going on here because all these excesses uh, are having the backing of these draconian laws some of these laws uh, have been called as lawless laws and there have been various campaigns going on for the uh, for the repealment of these laws but we have not uh, seen uh, much success yet so uh, so we also have a grid of indefinite uh, detention here wherein prisoners are held under administrative detentions for months years and we have some prisoners here who are under administrative detention for almost a decade now and when people especially lawyers take up these cases before the courts then the state goes after these lawyers and they book the lawyers under the same laws uh, for which they have been fighting for their clients and uh, we also see excessive legalism here we also see uh, hyper legal technicalities we also see paper uh, warfare here the language uh, in which these laws are framed uh, in the name of public order or in the name of national security anybody is booked and uh, is kept under detention for several months for several years so uh, we can safely say that the justice system in kashmir especially because i belong to this uh, place it, it falls short of international standards judges have uh, failed to question the legality of these laws because it's one thing to have a law and it's entirely a different thing to have a legislation uh, which uh, which is fair which based on rule of law so uh, we have also seen uh, recently that uh, there are laws that laws ultimately reflect the political will of the government and if the political will of the government is unjust it's based on ulterior motives what we will get is laws which are unjust we have seen recent examples in india that uh, the majoritarian uh, right wing government has passed laws like citizenship amendment act which is seen as anti minority by the muslims of india those uh, uh, who have tried to raise their voice against this uh, act they have been subjected to arbitrary detentions we have muslim uh, youth who have, who have been randomly picked and who are languishing in jails we recently saw uh, one of the lawyers who was representing the rights accused in delhi his name is mahmood pracha his office was raided by investigative agencies so basically we see a pattern wherein anybody who raises voice against the government so we are what we are asking here is not uh, for state protection what we are asking for we are asking for the state to let us do our job if you can't protect us but don't prosecute us don't persecute us don't try to silence us so basically here the difference lies that it's the state who is the perpetrator who is who goes after the uh, activists who goes after the lawyers so uh 
then uh, we also when we talk about kashmir we also have uh, two uh, human rights uh, reports released by office of the human rights commissioner un uh, uh, high, un high commissioner for human uh, rights which have uh, we have two reports one is from 2018 and another one is from 2019 so both the reports have called for an international uh, inquiry to conduct a a comprehensive independent investigation into the human rights abuses happening in kashmir and uh, so yeah that's it and uh, i hope we can through these networks we can build uh, solidarity networks and uh, we can uh, pitch in wherein our uh, fellow brothers activists are hounded by these majoritarian and authoritarian governments thank you <clears throat> Thank you very much, Habil. Um, one can only imagine the type of environment that Habil operates in. I, I mean, we when we we think of Clive's point about how fortunate we are in the West, um, it's difficult, but clearly not as difficult as the situation that Habil finds himself in. Um, that said, the targeting does take the form of of assassination, as in Michael's case, and also the imprisonment. With, as in the case of our next speaker, Stanley Cohen from the US, um, who was prosecuted and who was convicted and who went to prison on trumped up charges, uh, which appear to be purely because of the type of clients that he represents. Um, I'm hoping Stanley can share his experiences with us, um, not just his own experience, but those of his um, late colleague, Lynn Stewart as well, who also ended up in prison because of the nature of her work. Um, I'm going to leave it up to, to Stanley to take it from there. <clears throat> Thank you uh, so very much. I'm happy uh, to participate um, in this discussion. It's been long overdue. Um, to provide context. For years, I have been uh, blessed, for lack of a better word, and functioning as an attorney in a society, in a country, in a culture in a system which promotes itself as being the world's leading uh, proponent of justice, of due process, of equal protection, that uh, increasingly over the last 10, 15, 20 years has elected to strip aside the allure, the mystique, the cloud, and reality has hit home. 30 years ago, I was asked by the Warrior Society of the Iroquois Confederacy to travel to Ganesadage, where there was an armed standoff with the Canadian Army, to serve as a consultant on international law, to deal with the issues of international rights, to help uh, uh, prepare documents, to participate in negotiations and discussions to try to find a peaceful resolution to an armed standoff that began with the death of a Sauté de Quebec police officer. Uh, I spent some three to four months in that capacity as a lawyer, as someone who had been welcomed by the Canadian government to fulfill that particular role. And when the negotiated settlement came to pass and we left the treatment center, everyone who was in the treatment center was arrested, including Stanley Cohen. I was indicted for seditious conspiracy, not for substantive offenses involving the use of a weapon, incitement, the act of violence, uh, in any way, shape or form, committing other substantive breaches of Canadian law, but simply by performing as an attorney, 
Uh, so how did the advocate of Cohen become the adversary of the Canadian government? It was simple. It was expected with my welcome by the Canadian government that I was to play a particular role, not on behalf of my client, but to convince my clients to essentially surrender to the Canadian government, to the Canadian agenda, to the Canadian policy. And because I performed as an attorney representing clients in the midst of a very terrible situation, Canada decided I had crossed the line from Cohen the advocate to Cohen the adversary. Now, over the next 18 months or so, 30 years ago, I had to periodically go to court in Canada along with my clients while I continued to represent people charged with terrorism in the United States. And eventually the light went on in the brain of a Canadian judge who said, wait a minute, Cohen is a US citizen. How do we prosecute a US citizen for seditious conspiracy when he's not a citizen of the state that's prosecuting him? And the case was dismissed. But the lesson, the takeaway was very clear at a young age, 30 years ago, that the greater the friction, the more you stand your ground, the more you fight, whether as an attorney or as an activist, as a civilian, uh, the greater the system will come for you. Uh, you measure your success not by your friends, but by your enemies. In the months and years that followed, it was noted that I mentioned, I represented Musa Abu Marzouk, who was then the head of the political wing of Hamas. And what was interesting about the Marzouk case, because it pretends things that have evolved, in particular in the United States and in the West in the years since, the Knesset in Israel decided they wanted to extradite Abu Marzouk for charges of support, material support, basically, in the Intifada. Now, at that point, Hamas had not been a foreign designated terrorist organization in the United States. But at the behest of Israel, suddenly Hamas was designated a terrorist organization. Abu Marzouk was picked up and prosecuted not for offenses, overt acts, or activities going forward, but the application of laws nunc pro tunc for activity which he had engaged in in the United States when they were perfectly permissible and lawful. The takeaway was, of course, that the system that in theory was based upon due process and equal protection and being um, uh, prosecuted, if applicable, for acts that you committed when they were illegal and not acts or overt acts you, you, you participated in when they were legal, was falling apart. In the years to come, it only grew worse. With 9-11, with the invasion of Iraq, with the invasion of Afghanistan, with settling the, the, the black camps, with using Bagram and Kandahar for torture chambers, which establishing Guantanamo Bay, which was used as a safe zone, largely to avoid what protection people may have been entitled to, being prosecuted for crimes in the United States. It liberated the US military to torture, to assassinate, to concoct, to lock away people out of sight and out of mind. And it also played a particular political purpose in the United States, promoting this illusion of justice and protection and security, a talisman that has only grown with the passage of time. With that, we can point out the development of the surveillance state in the United States and throughout the world. But in the United States, which has long uh, projected and correctly so, the world's greatest protections in terms of speech, association, assembly and dissent with the talisman of uh, terrorism, with the talisman of security, with the merger of various government entities, we saw the development of the surveillance state. And we saw judges who at one time applied the law equally, fairly and appropriately, consistent with the First Amendment protections that were 150 years of settled law in the United States, began to find exceptions, exceptions to the rule. 
always with the talisman being security. Whether it was FISA, whether it was the NSA surveillance, whether it was the attempt to um, prevent people from engaging today as they are in BDS activity, as violative of, 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 of as, as constituting some sort of hate speech, there has been a concerted effort to blend, to merge the institutions which for a long time in the United States had been separate but equal and had their own role to play as a check and balance against one another, began to marry and to merge into a common role, into a common purpose, into a common thread. And with that, we saw an all out attack in the United States and elsewhere in the West on speech, assembly, association, protest, and dissent. Over the course of time, we have seen the evolving role of lawyers. At one time, lawyers were expected, and most did, play a particular role within the system. You were supposed to advocate, but advocate only so much. You were supposed to be friction, but friction under the machine only to such an extent. You were supposed to limit your activity, your position, your promotion to the courtroom. And when you went home, you were supposed to generally in those days, as white males, as privileged white males, enjoy the benefit of your profession, make a lot of money and move on with life. The, the evolving role of lawyers has, has, has brought about as well, the evolving response by the government in the persecution of lawyers and activists under many different theories of law. Years ago, we had the COINTELPRO situation in the United States where the FBI targeted people of color, where they targeted Native Americans, where they targeted political dissidents, for assassination, for persecution, for frames, for political prosecution. Seemingly it went away, but it reared its head, it returned. At some point, after my representing Abu Marzouk, it was brought to my attention that I was the subject of a, an investigation for material support of terrorists. It was primarily precipitated at the time because I refused to get what was known as an OFAC license, an Office of Financial Asset Control license where you had to go to the government to get permission from the government to fight the government. You had to make certain representations and maintain communication with the government about the nature and extent of your relationship with clients, economic relationship, travel relationship, who you were meeting with, and I refused to do it. I took cases pro bono and argued, there's no need for an OFAC license, none at all. At one point I got in a, a very large battle with the Department of Treasury which oversaw OFAC and which they threatened to indict me. I invited it, I said, go ahead. It unleashed an investigation that went for more than 10 years and ended up going nowhere. At that point, while I continued to represent probably more so-called terrorism cases in the United States, real and fake, than any other lawyer, it moved on to a new allegation involving some crazed conspiracy of marijuana with my Mohawk clients on the Canadian border. That went nowhere. But over the course of this decade or so of harassment, of subpoenas, of surveillance, of intimidating clients, of approaching clients where there was a right to counsel and suggesting that if they cooperated with the government in the investigation of Cohen, they would garner something. It eventually reached a point where I made a decision because of the harassment of my clients and my practice and the costs exorbitant and the pressure upon my family, I elected to dispose of the matter. I elected to dispose of the matter with a disposition to the crime of impeding the IRS. What does impeding the IRS mean? No one knows what it means. It was the only prosecution for 30 years. But I elected to resolve the case because had it continued 
it would have been five, 10, 15 more years of trials, appeals, trials and more appeals, which would have essentially played into the government's hands and silenced me as an advocate to the despair, the despise, the disaffected in the country. And so, yes, I went to prison for 10 months and then was on what is known as a period of supervised release. And then within a year or so, reacquired my license. It didn't change me. It didn't silence me. It didn't change the nature of my cases or the commitment to my clients and the avocation which I pursue. Now, this evolving role of attorneys that other colleagues have spoken about before, where are we at in the year 2021? In countries throughout the world, in China, in Egypt, in Russia, in the United States, in KSA, in India and elsewhere, lawyers, slandered, libeled, imprisoned, tortured, disappeared, murdered for practicing their trade. Now, I know there are many young people listening to this, this discussion today. Some are law students, some are young lawyers, and folks that are going into this field must enter it with open eyes because the stakes have changed dramatically throughout the world. We have seen a merger of state apparatus, of despots, of the court system basically surrendering to the people that appoint them, where the independence that the judiciary once enjoyed, once it promoted, once it dealt with, has dissipated in large segments of the world. Yes, lawyers are still able to go into courtrooms and cross-examine witnesses, and to make arguments, and to write briefs, to argue appeals, and to sum up the jury. But increasingly, lawyers are the one in the, the prisoner's dock. Lawyers are the ones that are being targeted. Because as you silence the lawyers, it silences their clients or helps to silence their clients. It makes it more difficult. It sends a message that no one is beyond reproach or retaliation. And that is what has been going on throughout the world. Now, so apparent is this distortion of the judicial process in the world today that there is a doctrine that is developed that is called the doctrine of futility. What the doctrine of futility basically deals with an age old practice. If I represent a client, if I represent a movement, if I represent a class of people that want to bring a human rights claim or action against the government, that wish to challenge the government for a violation of international law for human rights, that wish to approach the leadership, the despots that control the government. Traditionally, I've been required to go into that state to bring an action in that state, to challenge that state in that state's court. It has become so palpably clear over the last 20, 30, 40 years of the impossibility of getting your day in court that a doctrine of utility has developed. It essentially says, before you bring a human rights claim, before you seek justice for violation of international law, you need not pursue remedies in the very state that you're accusing. If the judiciary is incompetent, if the judiciary is corrupt, if the judiciary is so tattered and torn by delay as to deny justice. The doctrine of futility has now been recognized. At least two occasions, for example, Egypt has been subject to the exception to the doctrine of futility. I've raised it against Israel as well. The first occasion was in the battle with Ethiopia over a dam, where the African Union said that Ethiopia did not have to go into an Egyptian court to seek justice. The second matter was a case I was personally involved in in 2014 when Israel was dropping bombs, phosphorus and cluster bombs on civilians that were hiding in the corners of the Rafa crossing and Egypt would not allow thousands of people being targeted, assassinated, murdered by a deadly killing machine to cross Rafa to go into Egypt. I brought a claim in the African Union 
Again, Egypt said, you must come to us first. And again, the African Union said, the doctrine of futility said it's not necessary. Now, for those young lawyers and law students that are out there, go into this with open eyes. Understand that while I agree with Clive, we should not be the center of the universe, that we are told we're the best, the brightest, the prettiest, the most handsome, we're not. We're a bridge to reflect, to express, and to assist our clients, our community, and our world to obtain justice in a world that is increasingly oppressive, increasingly despotic, increasingly driven by an attempt to silence us, to punish us, and to make us go away. Now, in, 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 in closing, I'd like to hearken back to an idol of mine as a young man. As a young man who did, was trying to decide who and what I should be, and for a moment, we can go back to Lynn Stewart, my de facto law partner, who refused to silence, self-impose, self-censor, when the government said that there were SAM agreements that precluded her from speaking on behalf of her client to the outside world. Lynn rejected that notion as a lawyer, as a human being, as an activist, and spoke out about conditions and about situation. Lynn was prosecuted for material support for terrorism, convicted and sentenced to 24 months. When Lynn walked out of the courtroom and said, I'll do 24 months on behalf of justice. I'll do 24 months on behalf of principle. I'll do 24 months on behalf of humanity. It went to an appeals court and they said, good, now you get 10 years. And off Lynn went, not with a sob or a sigh, but with pride for what she had done and who she was. Lynn, rest in peace, was released eventually and she died of cancer. Now closing, I'd like to go back to briefly, very briefly, a hero of mine when I was a young man, Clarence Darrow, who had practiced law 50 or 60 years before I was born, started out as a corporate lawyer and ended up working on behalf of trade unions, representing people on death row, having successfully represented 150 people who were not executed by the state, having represented so-called terrorists of the day. And late in life, when he was asked what justice was about, and a journalist said, is it the courtroom? And Darrow said, we'd like to think that the courtroom was a place where opposing sides fight for justice, when in reality, it's a coliseum where gladiators fight to win. Now, that's not to suggest we should abdicate our responsibility as lawyers, that we should be unethical, that we should engage in the violation of laws in doing so on behalf of our clients, but it is to suggest we, have, we must be real, that the illusion of justice, the illusion of a process which is designed to be just and fair and equitable has always been just that. And yes, there are those victories. There are those occasions where we can prevail, but by and large, the despaired, the despised, the disaffected have been denied justice and always will be denied justice until there is a mass movement worldwide that demands it. I thank you. Thank you very much, Stanley. Um, very powerful, very inspiring. Um, and I understand there's a, is there a documentary coming out about your battles over the many years? Yeah, there's a, there's a documentary coming out that's called The Devil's Advocate. It, it deals with my uh, representation of Abu Ghaith, Suleiman Abu Ghaith, who was Osama bin Laden's son-in-law in that trial, as well as some other cases that I've handled. 
Um, and it's also it involves two other lawyers that have handled provocative cases. But fundamentally, it deals with the friction, the tension, the battle of representing so-called terrorists, the impossibility of finding justice in an unjust time and place in a system that is designed to perpetuate the appearance of justice at the same time it is built upon rendition and torture and the lack of equal protection and due process. It is a process that we fight, we pursue, and on occasion prevail, but by and large, it is designed to maintain the majoritarian values and the status quo anti of those in power. And that leads us quite nicely to, to our next uh, speaker because he's gonna be talking about the experiences of lawyers in South Africa during the uh, apartheid era. Uh, Feroz Boda is a currently senior counsel who's been practicing as an advocate since 1996. He's involved with human rights work in South Africa with CAGE and with the Muslim Lawyers Association. They've brought numerous uh, war crimes investigations against political leaders like Shimon Peres, uh, Narendra Modi, George Bush, and uh, Barack Obama. Um, he's gonna talk about the conflict within uh, the legal profession in South Africa, about whether by being involved with the system, you were um, almost complicit within the oppression something I guess Stanley was sort of implicitly re referring to just now. So I'm hoping Feroz can educate us with some lessons from the struggle of lawyers in South Africa at that time. I do have a slight presentation. I'm not sure if you can load it. Uh, I think there's something before this. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I want to thank Cage for inviting me on such a prestigious panel. Uh, some of the lives that we've just walked through now are really inspiring. And, uh, you know, uh, despite what, what Clive has said, uh, you can see that uh, being a messenger sometimes comes with its own uh, challenges, threats, and problems, and and the work that uh, my colleagues internationally have done is just, just so admirable, and we can only pray that uh, they grow from strength to strength. Uh, I'm going to talk about the importance of lawfare and why it is necessary for lawyers to pursue their struggles, notwithstanding uh, the difficulties that they may face, and hopefully articulate five reasons why that should be so. Uh, if you can go to the next slide, please. Uh, if you look at first uh, the situation in, uh, in, in, in South Africa prior to uh, the, the democracy in 1994, and uh, this is taken largely from an article by uh, Professor John Dugard, uh, Human Rights Apartheid uh, and, and Lawyers. Uh, and uh, what Professor Dugard basically highlights is the, is the difficulties that lawyers faced under the apartheid regime. And generally lawyers were, as he says, of and for the establishment or elected to be neutral and silent instead of representing victims and upholding the rule of law, what Professor Dugard calls collaboration by silence. Law was used as an instrument of discrimination and repression positivism and executive deference became a pretext 
for judicial ex ex uh, abstention. For example, it was a crime for different races to study uh, together, to work together, to organize, and political dissent in any form was banned and criminalized. And judges interpreted ambiguous racist statutes in furtherance of apartheid. They upheld apartheid laws and detention without trial. They denied reading materials to detainees, thereby creating an environment that it made it easier to obtain confessions. And lawyers acting for victims were not given commercial work. They were ridiculed. Uh, the threat of contempt always hung over their heads. Uh, some of them were detained, denied passports, subject to personal restrictions, suffered social pressure and victimization. And some like Nelson Mandela, who was obviously, he was a lawyer himself, uh, opted for the armed struggle and paid the ultimate uh, price of being detained for so many years. And during the Ravonia trial, he actually indicated, if you, if you look at his speech, uh, which is available on the internet, he indicated all the failures of apartheid law and what had motivated him to embrace him and the ANC to embrace violence and the armed struggle, which he labeled as not constituting terrorism. Now, when I look at some of the uh, stories that we've just heard, and, and I go back to pre-1994, uh, and and I'm I'm just I'm just reflecting on how the days have changed. Uh, there's a, a lovely verse from the Quran that we alternate the days. Uh, we alternate the days among mankind. So when we sit now in in, in uh, post-apartheid South Africa, where we as lawyers have the freedom to operate, we are not subjected to the restrictions that you've just heard about. Uh, uh, that verse becomes alive in a sense because it. when we look out at the world and what's happening in the UK, what's happening in the United States, what's happening in Kashmir, it almost seems as if apartheid has spread to the rest of the world, apartheid just in another form, perhaps not that label, but all the trappings of apartheid, all, all the repression uh, and, and all the discrimination existing all way, uh, everywhere else in the world. So in South Africa, with the space that we have, uh, we need to uh, we need to utilize that space and stand in solidarity with other people. So perhaps the the the, the next five points I want to make is to inspire everybody to continue doing what they're doing and hopefully uh, articulate why lawfare is important and must carry on. Uh, if you can go to the next slide, please. Uh, the first reason why why someone would want to carry on, and this is a very subjective uh, perspective, it certainly inspires, I think, Cage and the uh, and and the uh, other organizations that I work for is really a, a religious perspective. And there are there there are a number of uh, the verses in the Holy Quran, of a number of sayings of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam that one that would inspire any person represent. Uh, acting as a lawyer uh, for, for clients who are no doubt the heroes to continue their fight. And the first one that has always inspired uh, many people who choose to go this path is, is a, a wonderful hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he says, uh, where, where, where he asked, what is the most virtuous struggle, jihad? And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, a word of truth in front of a tyrannical ruler. Uh, and, and there's another verse of the Quran, O you who have believed, be persistently standing firm for Allah 
witness injustice and do not let the hatred of people prevent you from being just. Be just that is nearer to righteousness and fear Allah. Indeed, Allah is acquainted with what you do. In another hadith, the Prophet famously said, whoever of you sees an evil, let him change it with his hand. And if he's not able to do so, let him change it with his tongue. And if he's not able to do so, then with his heart. And that is the weakest of faith. And in, in, in another beautiful saying, uh, the Prophet said, help your brother, whether he's oppressed or the oppressor. And when asked, how do you help the oppressor? He, he said, by stopping the oppressor from oppressing. And this is the role that I think lawyers can play in order to further their struggles and to stand for justice. And in this fulfillment of a higher purpose, whatever it may be, is something that would that should drive people uh, to continue their fight. Uh, now, now the, the next slide talks about uh, some of the achievements in waging uh, lawfare in, 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 the, uh, in this country. And one of the things that uh, what we've tried to do in South Africa is we have just laws in South Africa. So one of the things that we have is that, that the government has entrenched the Rome Statute and made it into domestic law with the result that universal jurisdiction now applies in South Africa. And, and because of the cases that we've brought and sometimes uh, they have embarrassed the government, uh, the government has tried to uh, get out of the Rome Statute, but a court has basically said that the government cannot do so because the statute was passed by parliament and it's not an executive decision for government to, to try and get out of the, uh, the Rome Statute. So uh, we know that law is used by the oppressor uh, as a tool of his oppression, but lawyers today have two roles. Internally within your domestic systems, Every legal system provides spaces to argue the good, part, the good parts of the law. Every statute, even those in the most positivist of societies, is subject to interpretation. And while, uh, while every oppressive law has its loopholes, and the duty of the lawyer is to continue to search for these spaces, even if they result in small victories, obviously to achieve justice for their client. And externally, universal jurisdiction laws prohibiting torture, war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity, which includes apartheid, are counterbalancing instruments to be used against oppressors. And this is, this is a very important tool for lawyers to use uh, in order to give a voice to those who, who are repressed, uh, th those who, who, who do not have the freedom to act. So while we in South Africa have the space and the freedom to operate now, a greater responsibility, I believe, rests on us to show solidarity with the world and to show solidarity with oppressed communities, wherever they may be. Uh, one example, as the next slide uh, talks to, uh, is, 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 is the example of the, uh, uh, the Modi docket. And one of the advantages of this type of international lawfare is that it creates uncertainty and fear in the mind of the oppressor. So just some background, uh, in terms of, of the universal jurisdiction uh, principles adopted by the South African courts, the anticipated presence of an accused uh, in South Africa gives the uh, police the, the jurisdiction to investigate crimes under the Rome Statute, which includes war crimes and crimes against humanity. So South Africa has uh, the jurisdiction uh, immediately when the accused, is, uh, there is an anticipation that the accused will visit the country. And based on this universal jurisdiction principle, uh, we've utilized it with, with other organizations 
such as the Free uh, South African Kashmir Action Group, uh, the MRN, uh, Muslim Lawyers Association, and many other organizations have brought a number of dockets, uh, we, and we've labeled them dockets, against oppressive rule, rulers. And one of them was uh, Modi. You'll recall a few years ago that the BRICS summit was held in South Africa. And this is a quote from an article. And uh, in, case, uh, in case it sounds far-fetched, I decided actually to quote the article because it, it articulates exactly what was achieved by the Modi docket. Obviously, uh, uh, Narendra Modi was not arrested. He came and he left the country safely. But one of the things that uh, was achieved was this, uh, th this point about creating uncertainty and fear. And the article correctly summarizes the position and it says, on the eve of the second BRICS summit to be hosted in South Africa, a chirpy press release by the Muslim Judicial Council belies the last minute scramble it took by President Cyril Ramposa, loyal, loyalist to prevent the gathering from a near collapse. In a press release full of sunshine and good PR, the Muslim community of South Africa joins fellow South Africans in welcoming the arrival of the BRICS delegates to our shores and our country. It was issued by four Muslim organizations, apparently in a charge led by the Muslim Judicial Council. We are fully committed to President Cyril Ramaphosa's investment initiative to build an economic powerhouse in the southern tip of Africa that will spill over the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, the statement read. This was a direct response to a legal application which was brought to arrest Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi by another Muslim group, the Johannesburg-based Muslim Lawyers Association and the South African Kashmiri Action Group, which could have scuppered the BRIC summit. There were frantic efforts by officials to prevent the summit from sinking. On the Thursday preceding the summit, Energy Minister Jeff Radebe got on a flight to India to reassure the Indian Prime Minister that he had nothing to fear upon his arrival in South Africa. What this quote highlights is the ad advantages of international lawfare and the use of international universal jurisdiction principles to try and make it difficult for oppressors, as difficult as possible. It also highlights another, another issue, uh, and that is uh, that, that while the law allows lawyers to operate and to bring such claims, uh, internal pressure is brought to bear upon the community by others from the same community because uh, one of the arguments against the Muslim Lawyers Association and South African Kashmiri Action Group from within the community was you embarrassing the, the president. The president is trying to build in investment initiatives in the country and, and, and to bring economic investment into the country and you by this docket are scuppering all those plans. But I mean, our response was quite clear. The government had decided on its own to uh, promulgate the Rome Statute into law, and surely that was not done. About its commitment to international human rights, then it had the responsibility to act. But a, a, a substantial amount of internal pressure from within the community was was born uh, upon us to try and withdraw the complaint. We were labeled as extremists. We, uh, we, uh, we were labeled as uh, a fringe group. Uh, and this is what the, the, the counterbalancing PR was try, uh, tried to articulate. But notwithstanding all of that, I think a great victory was achieved and there was a, a fair amount of publicity. In, a, in, another, in another two dockets that we launched, once, one against uh, uh, Abdul Fattah Sisi, and another against Zippy Livni, which is called the Gaza docket. 
both of these world leaders decided to cancel their visits to South Africa as a direct response to the dockets. And that was another means, another avenue where, where we were able, with, with the space that we are given in this country, to be able to stand in solidarity with oppressed people in other parts of the, uh, the world. Uh, so the, the, the fourth advantage, if we go to the next slide, the fourth advantage of continuing uh, with, with lawfare, uh, if you can just turn there, yes, is giving a voice to those who are deliberately silenced. And, and, and I think that this is what should motivate uh, lawyers to use uh, universal jurisdiction principles to continue this fight, uh, this fight. Because in the process, a number of things are achieved. Upholding due process rights and the rule of law, humanizing the victims and survivors, countering the dominant narrative. Lawyers are uniquely placed to challenge oppressive laws because their status defies the propaganda that resistance to state policy emanates from the unruly, the lawless, and the terrorist. Combating fear and providing dignity and confidence to the oppressed community, striving for accountability and redress. And the, the last point I want to make, and that, that goes to the next slide, is the continued use of lawfare as an instrument to highlight the plight of the oppressed, exposes duplicity and injustice and brings about long-term change. So even where cases have no prospects of success, gains may be, may be made. An unjust result undermines the oppressor and exposes the duplicity and cruelty of the legal system. So at the end, if the, if the uh, courts decide not to act, then it's a testimony against them that their, real, their commitment is in word, but not in action. And that, that, is, that is in itself a, a great challenge to governments to, uh, to, to compel them to stand true to their, uh, to their uh, commitments to human rights, which they verbally express. Uh, second, over time, unjust laws change and are amended as a result of unjust results in legal cases that were lost. South Africa is a clear example of this. All of those uh, rules of interpretation uh, of statutes that I, I, I highlighted at the start all of them have now found their way in the South African constitution, which requires a, a, a purposive uh, approach to interpretation and one that supports uh, uh, the promotion of fundamental rights rather than undermines un uh, fundamental rights. So it takes time for gains to be made, but all of those difficult cases that lawyers fought in the apartheid struggle ultimately made for better laws and juster laws uh, in, 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 in the, in the post-apartheid South Africa. And I can just end by two quotes from uh, Malikal Shabazz, Malcolm X. Uh, wrong is wrong, no matter who does it or says it. Usually when people are sad, they don't do anything. They just cry over their condition. But when, when they get angry, they bring about change. So I, I, I want to try and hopefully inspire and encourage uh, whoever is listening to take up this mantle uh, as the speakers have articulated, it comes with its own challenges, even in a, in a country like South Africa, where you have the legal space to operate, there isn't pressure placed upon uh, us by the government, despite all of these, sometimes people will say crazy cases that we've brought, including one to arrest Barack Obama when he was here. Uh, we haven't really been victimized uh, directly by the government in any sense. But, but it does come with its difficulties, its internal pressures, 
uh, as minority communities, there's pressure internally to try and not act against government for fear of losing freedoms which people have. Uh, there's personal uh, uh, family sacrifices. Your, uh, I think every person who's involved in struggles like this, uh, their family takes a back seat. Their family makes a lot of personal sacrifices. Their children make sacrifices. But uh, hopefully these higher ideals and higher purposes should drive us to continue this fight, inshallah. Jazakallah khair, and I thank you for this opportunity. Uh, thank you very much, Feroz, for that uh, account of the work, amazing work that you guys are doing in South Africa. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the seminar, um, and there isn't sufficient time for Q&A. What I would like to end on is a, an action point, because um, it's all good talking the talk, but uh, we should try to take some action at the same time. Um, it was pointed out in the chat box that the issue of lawfare is something that uh, Cage um, and Wazam in particular were, I don't know if the word criticized is correct, but they were, it was commented that they are experts in lawfare. Um, so if it's not good enough that you're acting within the law, it's deemed that if you're too good at it, it's something that should be deemed to be sinister. So what we have in mind is we have a letter that's been drafted and been signed by many of the panelists already, which is going to be sent to Mary Lawler, who is the current UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders. So a letter is going to be circulated to all of the attendees um, at this event. And we're hoping to get as many lawyers to sign it from around the world, calling for more protection for human rights defenders and particularly their legal representatives. Um, so please, um, if you get the email, we want to try to send this out on Tuesday to the rapporteur. So if you could confirm whether or not you can sign it by tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Um, as I said, many of the panelists have already signed it. And if you get the email, you could circulate it amongst your own legal contacts as well. Um, apart from that, just want to thank all of the panelists again for their personal contribution to today's seminar. Um, I've learned a lot. I've been inspired uh, by each and every one of the panelists, and I think most of us will agree with that. Um, and I'm hoping we can all continue to struggle in our respective spheres for our clients um, and to hold these governments to account. So um, apart from that, thank you all. <laughs>